Amen. Thank you, Jackie. Praise team. Well, if you have your Bibles or you want to follow along, it's also in the bulletin. Hebrews chapter 12, we're looking at this Christian race. And as you're turning there, I want you to consider a couple of running stories. These are true stories. Two are from the Olympics. The first is <clears throat> 1923. And this location was in England, and the runner is Eric Little. And this was a triangular contest between Scotland, England, and Ireland, and the race was the 440. And Eric Little was knocked to the ground on the first turn. <clears throat> and several strides into the race, he realizes he's on the ground. He's at least 20 feet behind. He gets up. He starts running. He passed all the runners and, run, and won the race, crossing the tape before anybody else, 1923. The second, which many of you remember, like myself, this was one of the first Olympics that I can remember watching, was the Summer Olympics in LA in 1984. And Mary Decker Slaney was heavily favored to win the race. This was a 3,000 meter race. Her main competition was a 92 pound barefoot runner from South Africa named Zola Butt. And midway through the race, Zola Bud cut in front of Mary Decker Slaney, who was in first place. And Mary Decker Slaney tripped, fell, came to the ground. And I can just remember her pounding the asphalt and just sobbing and crying her eyes out as she never finished the race. Then we have the 1992 Olympics. And if you have never seen this, you should just type in Derek Redmond and just type that into Google with his dad and it's an amazing clip. I can't watch it without crying. This was the 400 meter semifinal race, 1992 Olympics in Barcelona and Derek Redmond, <clears throat> an England runner, he tears his hamstring. He just tore his hamstring in the middle of the race and he comes to a complete stop and he's in utter pain and, and he begins to hop and he wants to finish the race. And this guy comes out of the stands and the field assistants are trying to stop him. And he's saying, it's my son, it's my son and he's gonna finish the race. And he puts his arm around his son, his son's just bawling in his dad's arms. And his dad has to fight off a few field assistants so he can finish the race to a standing ovation of all the people there. And I wonder, when you think about running this race, where do you fit in one of those three categories this morning? You feel like, man, I'm running well, man. I've fallen, but now I'm passing everybody. I'm going to win this race. Or are you just falling and bawling your eyes out and smacking the asphalt and you're not even getting up? Or are you hurt, tore up in this race, but you know your heavenly Father is with you. He loves you, and he is going to bring you to the finish line. I wonder if some of us are running the race like one time I was over at Sam's and I was, I was buying a TV for the church. Some of you may remember this story, but I was getting a, one of those large TVs and I put it into the back seat of my car and I have one of these huge, you know, they have the two different containers at, at Sam's. They've got the one for like the groceries and then the one if you've got like something mega, you know, with the heavier wheels and, 
And I noticed that when I put the TV in the car that the cart was already gone. I thought, wow, the assistants are really amazing. It's Sam's. They've already come and gotten the cart for me. I thought, wow, this is really nice. And I looked and realized the cart is going down the hill. And it is heading for a guy who parked his truck at the bottom of the hill. And he parked it there because his truck was so nice. He had massive clearance, special rims, four-door 24-inch suspension, and all I kept thinking is Bubba's going to kill me as I was running <laughs> full out all I could do to get to this cart before it hits Bubba's truck because all I was thinking, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me, and I'm running full speed, and I recover the cart before it hits the truck, and what do I do? I look around to see if anybody saw it, <laughs> and one of the attendants came up and said, I saw it. <laughs> I think some of us run the Christian race that way. We think, Bubba's going to kill me. That I'm going to be in big trouble if I don't finish well. And that's not a real good motivation for endurance running. It's not going to get you to the finish line. So we need to see the grace of God throughout this text. And I want to tell you that this Christian life is not an easy race. When I started this race when I was 17 and became a Christian, for many years it was easy sailing. And I was, you know, God, I thought I was God's gift to the ministry. And went off to a Christian college and things were well. And I had, I had four very close friends and I still keep up with these guys to this day. Let me just tell you about these four friends of mine, just to give you some perspective. Because I'm 26 years now out of college. And we were super close, run the race together, friends. These were all in my wedding. These are my four buds. But one of the guys that was one of my closest friends in college, he ran off with one of the girls from the basketball team from the college, left his wife, beautiful baby, and I don't keep in touch with him anymore. He ran off with some chick that was much younger than him, probably almost 10 years younger, and don't have any contact with him. And yet he, were, he was running well in college. Did a lot of praying with him, a lot of worship, a lot of spiritual talks. I even have a book in my office, Evangelism and Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, signed from him and encouraged me to press on in the race. So that's one friend. I got another friend who has just gone through a really painful divorce. And his divorce has just become final. And his wife has tried to commit suicide twice in the last couple of months, and there's been a lot of, he doesn't really have biblical grounds for divorce, and we've had to talk through that, and he, at the end of the day, he doesn't care because he cannot live with this woman. And so he's, Christian life has become very hard for him. He's been living in a trailer for over a year. So that's my other good friend. And I got another friend that's been, in, he's been in Taiwan as a missionary for years, and as he describes it, he can remember the exact day that he got some virus. And he said, it's all of a sudden, it's like your house is, runs on 110 electricity and somebody went down into your basement and turned everything down to about 75. And now he has chronic fatigue and he's just tired all the time because his power got turned down to 75. The doctors have told him that he's fighting a virus. They can't figure out what the virus is and what he's fighting. He's now 40-something years old, living with his parents in Connecticut, never been married, and the Christian life has gotten really hard. 
And then my other friend, who uh, is an elder in a PCA church outside of Atlanta, his wife has similar issues. She has this chronic pain that she's constantly struggling with, and it just drives him nuts when everybody in the church tries to self-diagnose and pretend they're doctors and say, oh, I think it's this, and they give her this article, and he's just like, one time he just kind of went off on a small group like I've asked you to pray not to diagnose because you know we've been trying to get a diagnosis for years you know please just pray instead of trying to give me your little quick fix that you read on the internet through you know MedMD or something you know so he's struggling with seeing his wife struggle with chronic fatigue and so the point is is that we all four started this race the five of us like man we're we're gonna conquer the world and you realize that this Christian life has a lot of difficulties along the way, doesn't it? And this little house church to the book of Hebrews is writing these people that started off really well. They were running great. They were willing to go public with their faith and meet people at the prison and turn around and see their homes being destroyed because they go in public with their faith, but they knew they had a better possession and abiding one, and they were willing to let their house go because they were identifying themselves as, as Christians, and they're, they're suffering mistreatment, they're, ex they're experiencing hardship, many are being imprisoned, and they haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood, but that's on the horizon because now it's Caesar is Lord is the new dogma, and they're going around saying Jesus is Lord, and that's not going to fly so well with the Caesar, okay? So these people are thinking about quitting. They're tired. And so the writer of Hebrews is given all these 18 examples in Hebrews 11, and then, bam, we go from example to exhortation in chapter 12 that now, therefore... We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of, of God. So he's taking Jesus as the last example. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves." and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed be best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the, the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let me pray for us. Father, this is your word. Pray that, Lord, you'd help us to understand your love, your grace, your discipline, your training, and help us to see what Jesus has achieved for us. And thank you that he is interceding even now for us. Strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We go from 18 examples of faith, as I've mentioned, and here we get to this big therefore. And it, and it therefore is the big transition here in Hebrews in, in chapter 12. And um, we get to this word which we've been talking about, this ego and this race, okay? And this word that's used, if you just, I want to kind of emphasize a couple of words here in the text that kind of bring out that, this, that the struggle is very real. It's acute. It's not something that's, that's minor, this is intense, and so this, this was an Olympic term that was used, and, the, and the, the reading audience would have understood this race, and they would have had in mind the pentathlon and the Olympic Games, and they would get this idea of the agon. And it's interesting, this word that's used for race is the same word that Paul uses when he talks about fight. Fight the good fight, okay? So you have a noun and a verb for fight the good fight, and it's agonizomai and agon. And it's the same word that's used for race, is agon. But it's the idea of a, of a struggle or a contest or a fight, and its idea is it's very intense. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, and fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When you hear words like flee, pursue, and fight, good fight, take hold, what does that remind you of? Flee, pursue, fight, it's all battle terms. It's all terms of warfare. It's, that's the idea is that the Christian life is not a life of ease. I was going to bring the easy button up here this morning. I forgot to get it out of the church office, you know, and you hit it and you say, that was easy. And I think as Americans, the reason we get disappointed or disenchanted or, or tired so easily in the Christian life is because we thought that it was going to be an easy race. I mean, recently I was just, I was riding a, a ride this week on my bicycle, and I was just flying. I had a 20-mile-an-hour tailwind behind me. And I, this first, I mean, it was amazing. And I was watching the, the bikers go the other way, and I thought, they must not be in very good shape because they all look like they're really struggling. And at one point, I was averaging 22 and a half miles an hour on, on a ride, okay? I usually don't average anywhere near that, Okay. I mean, Pat can tell you, that's, that's hauling the groceries. If nobody's around and you're doing 22.5, it was great. The first half until I turned around. <laughs> and then I had to make my way back. And I was meeting actually the Parkers. Tom and Priscilla was down at the beach this week, and that's where my destination was. But, and the way back was just, 
Aegon. It was a fight. It was agony. It was sheer work as the wind is just, and maybe that's where you're at in the Christian life. Like maybe you're in a place right now where it's just, man, you got the tailwind and, and you're wondering, what is he talking about? I don't get this. Because right now, everything's just great in the Christian life. This is, I've got a tailwind, everything's going well, I got a good job, I make good money, everybody likes me, you know, things are working out, it's all good. But for many of you in this room this morning, you've made the the 180 turn and now you're coming back. And now you're in this, you're in a headwind that's just unbelievable. And, And you're going slow, it is slow going. But you're, you're going the right direction. But it is a fight. And that's what the Christian life is about. And for these people here that are reading this, they are facing persecution. They are starting to, de- as they stand and they come away from Judaism, and the Jews are getting persecuted too in, in, that, in that time. And, and so, and the Christians are, are getting, they're getting persecuted by the Jews and by the pagans, and so they are just, they, they don't, it's not, it's not going well, okay? And so the idea here is that the Christian life is difficulty. If you remember the classic line from the Princess Bride where she says, Buttercup says, you mock my pain. And he says, life is pain, Highness, and anyone who says differently is selling something. Well, that's the bad news. The good news is, as John Newton says in one of his letters, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So as you picture this imagery of verses 1 to 17, you have to just follow the imagery. The imagery is you're running a race. And then the word discipline, when you think the word discipline, as I'm hearing Christians use the term, they think David in the second half of Samuel, he screwed up and now he's experiencing the discipline of the Lord. That's not the discipline that's in view here. The discipline, that's, the word is paideia. And the word, the better translation of it is just as a father trains his children. Okay, so think of Ephesians 6, 4 which says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in what? Nurture and admonition of the Lord. The word nurture is paideia. Same word here that's used unbelievably amount of times from verses 5 to 14. I'll just read it to you in a different. I want to read it again to you, and I want you to read it thinking I'm running a race. God is my coach, but he's my heavenly father. So this is the idea that the writer is trying to communicate. He's saying, my son, do not regard lightly the training of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord trains the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It's for training that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not train? If you were left without training in which we've all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides all this, we've had earthly fathers who trained us and we respected us. Shall we not much, be, much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they trained us for a short time as it seems best to them. For he trains us for our good that we might share his holiness. For the moment, all training seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained, and that's the word for gymnasium, those who have really been exercised by it, 
okay? So the idea is that we, we like this idea of, of getting a coach, a personal coach, that, and that personal coach will train us because they know what they're doing and they know what our limits are and they will push us to get us to do things that we never thought we were able to do to achieve certain goals. And the imagery here is God is, is, is telling the people, you're running this Christian race and the race is sanctification and the one who's sanctifying you is God. And he uses affliction as his training. Now we saw in Psalm 34, what does affliction do to the wicked? Do you remember the last verse that we read in Psalm 34? Affliction will slay the wicked. It will kill them. They don't want any parts. I'm done with this. But God's people say from Psalm 119, in faithfulness you afflicted me. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your decrees. So for God's people, they actually grow with this training, this discipline. And, the, and, it's, and we'll get to what the discipline actually is because it's a big surprise in this text when you look at it carefully. But you think about, and you're, we, we, we totally get this when, you, when we think about, you know, when I was doing swim team, which didn't last long, but when I was doing swim team as a kid, we had to swim laps with a sweatshirt on. And it was terrible. And the reason it was terrible was because it was good. And then when you took that sweatshirt off, wow, you could really fly if you hadn't drowned already, but <laughs> you could really swim fast after that. And when I played baseball in high school, the co we had a very good coach, and, and, but he had some interesting ways to, to teach you. And he was so relentless about, as an outfielder, you hit the cutoff man, glove side cutoff man. You hit the cutoff man. If you didn't hit the cutoff man, you had to come in, and there was a, a log behind the, the uh, backstop, and it was like a mini telephone pole, and you had to run around the field with the backstop with this log over your head. And you, it got really painful about a third of the way around. And you had to keep running. And it, and it was, the point was, you will hit the cutoff man. You will hit the cutoff man. If you overthrow the cutoff man, then the runner advances. That's bad. So believe me, it was drilled into our heads. You will hit the cutoff man. Otherwise, you were running with this log over your head. So we get that. We understand about exercising and people disciplining us. And, and I remember, Last year when we were doing this, you guys, most of you remember, we, a bunch of guys, we did this uh, climb where we, we went out west and we climbed Beartooth Pass, which is almost 11,000 feet, and we're going to ride this on a bicycle. And I knew it was kind of intense, but when we got there, we asked the people where we were staying if anybody had ever biked it and they said well a few years ago there was these crazy people that that actually biked it and you say yeah we're doing that later this week <laughs> that was us well when I was on vacation I was at the beach again and I had been training on route one which was between Rehoboth and Fenwick Island it's flat as a pancake so when I actually got back from vacation I had been riding hard but I had regressed and all the other guys were already better shape than me to begin with, but I had regressed because they were riding hills. They were riding diff more difficult challenges, and all I was doing was riding flat ground, and I learned something. If you're going to 
challenge yourself, you have to take on more challenges. And so in the Christian life, why do we always want the easiest possible route, the easiest possible thing? Let me pick the easiest thing in the church to do. What is the very easiest, the most minimal thing I can do where everybody thinks I'm still doing a lot? What's the, you know, what's the, and we, we always want to do the least amount. And yet we grow the most when we take on the most. And we get that. And so what we see here in this text is that God is sanctifying his people and he uses discipline to do that. Now what's kind of the head twister is what is the rod that God is using to discipline us? Well, if you look carefully at this text, he's holding up Jesus and the imperative is to consider him who endured. And what did he endure? From sinners, such hostility against himself. Consider him so you don't grow weary and quit. And the idea of growing weary and faint-hearted, the word of faint-hearted is the idea is that you actually faint before you get to the finish line. This actually happened to Kim in a race where she ran as a kid and, and she made it to the finish line and she fainted before she ever got her ticket to report how fast she went. And I asked her just, well, where did you finish? You know, in the race, she said, I don't know because I fainted. I mean, you know, her parents were looking for her. They, they couldn't find her. They had taken her to the, to the nurse station. You know, she fainted. That's the word. The idea is that the writer is concerned that people would faint before they got to the finish line. And he's saying, consider Jesus and look at the hostility he experienced from sinners. And so then he's telling them that the very discipline that's often being metered out to us is coming from a crooked stick. It's coming from unbelievers who are actually persecuting you and bringing hardship upon you. Let me give, give you a quote. It's a little bit of an extended quote, but I thought John Piper's message was so helpful here he says this what adversaries do to you out of sinful hostility god is doing out of fatherly discipline notice very carefully the text does not say that god looks on while hostile sinners hurt his people while satan ravages the elect and only then does god step in to turn all this evil for good that's not what the text says it has a totally different conception of what is happening to us it says that God is disciplining us. He's teaching us. He's correcting us and transforming us. In other words, God has a purpose and a design in what's happening to us, and God is the ultimate doer here. He's not a passive observer in our lives while sinners and Satan beat us up. He rules over sinners and Satan, and they unwittingly, with no less fault or guilt, fulfill his wise and loving purposes of discipline in our lives. He says it's the difference between the surgeon who plans the incision for our good and the emergency room doctor who sews you up after a freak accident. The text is saying that God is the doctor planning the surgery, not the doctor repairing our lacerations. You see why this is so helpful? Because so often when I talk to people that are, that are so frustrated about the Christian life that it just doesn't make any sense. Why is God doing this to me? And they want God to intervene, and, and God's actually planning this. So he says, what hostile sinners mean for harm, God means for good. What they will is hurtful, God wills is helpful. While they plan as destruction, God plans as salvation. What they design as a deterrent to faith, God designs as discipline for faith. 
Our pain is not the effect of God's hate, but, the, but of God's love. And so God uses a crooked stick to straighten you, to discipline us to grow us in conformity to Jesus, just as he did with Jesus, who suffered, who suffered, and he endured, and he went to the cross, and he endured this hostility from sinners, and he's praying for these murderers who are murdering him. Father, forgive them while they're doing these incredibly hateful and despicable acts. So I think it's helpful for, for whatever is happening to you in your life, do not think that God is just passive in this. He has a purpose for his children. Do you discipline your neighbor's kids? No. You only discipline your own kids. God disciplines his children. Those are the ones that he disciplines. And so in his discipline is different than this idea of a punishment. God does never requires double jeopardy. So if you think this passage is that God is punishing me for my sin, all your punishment went on Jesus on the cross. So when we see God's discipline, his chastisement, A.W. Pink puts the distinction like this. The distinction between divine punishment and divine chastisement lies in the recipient of each. The objects of the former are his enemies. The subjects of the latter are his children. As judge of all the earth, God will take, yet take vengeance on all his foes. As the father of his family, God maintains discipline over all his children. The one is judicial, the other is parental. A third distinction is, is seen in the design of each. The one is re retributive, the other is remedial. The one flows from his anger, the other flows from his love. So divine punishment is never sent for the good of sinners, but for the honoring of God's law and the maintenance of his government. But divine chastisement is sent for the well-being of his children. And so we've got to keep this in mind as we're taking in this text. And then we're just reminded in this text that we're to look, remember that there's a great cloud of witnesses and we look back and we remember those that are set the pace for us. We've got pace setters that have set the pace and now they're watching. And then we're to look forward for the joy set before us like Jesus did of there's this hope that we have and we live for that. And then we're to look upward to Jesus and follow his example to us. And in doing that, we're called to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So the way that they would do this in the, in the ancient Greek, Greek games, it was pretty simple. When it said, throw off everything that hinders, they threw off everything that hinders, okay? Th there wasn't anything left on their body. They are as naked as naked could be. So if you're wondering what it means, but throw off everything that hinders, it means just, the, you know, everything. They got rid of everything. That was the, they, people would have gotten this in the original reading audience. They, they knew what throwing off everything that hinders. And the sin that's so easily entangled, so it's the idea is that Something can hinder you and something can slowly strangle you. It's this idea that it's, it's deceptive, but sin is this idea that it wants to kill you. And then there's even this worse thing at the end of watch out while you're running for these roots that will come up, trip you, and bam, down you go because of a root of bitterness while you're running this race and the bitterness is tied to sexual immorality. And so he's saying, watch out. 
as you're running this race, to throw off every rate, get rid of the sins. And so for each of us, that's going to look differently of what that's going to look like. I can tell you this. For many of the guys, next week starts an interesting week. Yesterday was all the cuts. All the teams went from 90 to 53. For those of you ladies wondering what in the world that means, there's 53 people on the active roster, and the 90-man roster has just got all the cuts were made yesterday. And the, and the NFL football season starts next week. And so there's people that get into these. I talked to my friend this week. He, was, he said he's not doing fantasy football this year because he said it was killing his Lord's Day. He was spending all of his time on the Lord's Day managing his football teams. And he said, he said it really, and he said he was winning, but he just said it took too much work. Well, I wonder, can you run well and, 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 have, and do all these kind of things? I mean, for each of us, it's differently. But I did Google this. I, how many hours a week do you spend in your fantasy football league? I just thought, well, I've never done it. But. And so the first answer that came up on Google was hours upon hours. I check my phone constantly. I look at the rankings several times a day. I listen to podcasts every day. I'm on the sub every day. I would probably be ashamed if I calculated how much time I actually spend studying football for my fantasy league. But I guess in the end it was worth it. In the two leagues I play in, I'm on the championship game for both. Boy, there's a life, huh? I mean, is that the life you want to live? But we laugh, but we can do other things. What, what is our little fantasy football thing? You know, we can get caught up in Facebook or caught up on how many likes I get on Facebook or whatever it is. God says to Israel, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. We are called to follow our trailblazer. Jesus is the champion, the pioneer, the finisher of the race, and he's the one who is seated now at the right hand of God and he endured the cross and we just kind of gloss over that but think about this as you come to the table this morning he endured the cross he endured what we should have received and as he endured that cross he had a left hand a right hand a left foot a right foot a spear in his side crowns on his head scourging and flogging on his back he's bleeding from top to bottom from front to back left foot right foot left hand right hand side head he's bleeding everywhere all of his life's blood he had to shed his blood or there could be no forgiveness of sin he shed his blood to sanctify his people and now he's making us holy and so we're to press on in this race. We shouldn't, when you see the word grace of God, it is forgiveness of sins, but often grace of God in the Bible is not a spiritual mulligan. It's not just a spiritual do-over. For, well, I get as many spiritual mulligans as possible, and I, it doesn't matter how I play golf. I just swing for defense, and that's pretty much how I play. But that's not how the Christian life is to be run. The idea is that his grace is the power now and the strength and the ability to do what we couldn't do before. So yes, grace is forgiveness, but it's the power supply that enables us to go and do what we couldn't do before. That's more of how we should see the grace of God. So as we come to the table and we talk about receiving grace, we receive his forgiveness afresh but we're also receiving the reminder of his love, but it's also giving us the strength and the ability to live out this Christian life. 
So we come and we say, Lord, I'm empty. Come and fill me. I'm yours. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this table of grace. And we're reminded of the accomplishment of our salvation. We thank you that you've done everything for us so that we could rest in your arms. Lord, we thank you for this forgiveness of sins. May we not treat that lightly. You know those who are, who are yours. And those who are yours must turn from iniquity. So we turn afresh. Lord, forgive us for loving this world thinking that it can satisfy our hearts. Only you can. We come running to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.